Friends, if you would uh, turn in your bulletins, uh, it's printed for you, Luke 2, verses 22 through 40. As I mentioned earlier, this is uh, Jesus being presented in the temple by his parents, Mary and Joseph. Um, and uh, essentially, after eight days, a, a baby boy would be uh, circumcised. And then uh, a total of 40 days later, his mother and father would go to the temple to give sacrifices for their uncleanliness as a result of the birth. And so what we see here is that presentation of Jesus and his parents in the temple uh, 40 days later after his birth. And so let me read this again. It's printed in your, in your bulletin, Luke 2, verses 22 through 40. This is God's word. And when the time came for their purification, that's Mary and Joseph, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Your sight. Our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Friends, have you heard of the uh, World War II Japanese lieutenant by the name of Hiro Onoda? I have to confess I haven't heard, I, I didn't hear about him, and you shouldn't 
feel ashamed. But if you're Japanese, you should know about Hiro Onoda because he was celebrated. In fact, he was a, a, a legendary character for the people of Japan. When World War II was happening in 1944, Hiro, that's H-I-R-O-O, two O's, Hiro, um, I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, he was sent to the Philippines to an island called Lubang, Lubang in the Philippines, and he was told, do not surrender. That was 1944, and he did not surrender for 29 years. Now, if you know your history, the World War II did not go on for 29 years. Hiro Onoda was holed up in the jungle. In fact, he would uh, kill the resident villagers periodically, and he lived off nuts and berries that he found in the woods. And he was the lone survivor until in 1974, almost 30 years later, he emerged from the jungle, the only survivor. And he was relieved of his duties by his commanding officer. They actually called this guy and said, you need to relieve Hero of his duties or he's going to continue to kill everyone. And so we see in this man, Hiro Onoda, this World War II Japanese lieutenant who became a legend, like I said, in Japan, we see in him that the objective reality of World War II had already happened. The war was over, but the subjective fulfillment, the reality of it happening in his own life hadn't yet come to pass. You have an objective reality, a war had ended, and the Allies had won, but a subjective reality that had never taken root in his own life. And that really is going to form the two pieces of our message today. Objective fulfillment and subjective fulfillment. So what am I talking about when it relates to objective fulfillment? I want you to follow along, if you will. There's five places in our passage. There's five places in our passage that talk about a fulfillment, an object of fulfillment according to the Old Testament. You see this word, according to, and you see it five times. According to the law of Moses in verse 22, according to the purification rites that I mentioned a moment ago. That comes from Leviticus 12. And then uh, you see in verse 23, as it is written in the law of the Lord, that comes from Exodus 13, what was, what was needful at that, at that time. Every male who first opens the womb. And then you see, according to what was said in the law of the Lord, our third place we see that. And uh, so basically the ceremonially unclean parents were supposed to bring two lambs to the temple to sacrifice. One for a guilt offering, one for a burnt offering. I'm not going to go into all the details of the differences of the different sacrifices. Suffice it to say that you were supposed to bring two animals. And if you were poor, you could bring two birds. Typically turtle doves or pigeons. I don't know what a turtle dove is, but it's a type of bird. Um, you could bring those if you were poor. And so even here, the Lord makes a concession for those who are poor. And in fact, we see in his parents that they were poor, right? That This is a king who is unlike any other king. He wasn't born with a material wealth that people would be drawn to him. In fact, it was repulsive to people. We see here our um, our uh, fourth yeah our fourth instance here of according to in verse 27. You see there to do for him according to the custom of the law. I want you to notice here to do for him. I think this this 
beckons us as parents, if you have children, to consider the great privilege and responsibility that when Jesus, who was able to fulfill the law perfectly and to obey perfectly, wasn't able to obey the law because he was an infant, his parents, who were, who were righteous, enabled him to fulfill the purposes of the law. You see, as God was looking out on humanity, He didn't look for the most upper crust, middle class white folks who could send their kid to a private school. In fact, He was looking for someone who yearned for and was welcoming the coming of the Lord. That was wealthy as it pertains to righteousness. So that even when Jesus, as a baby, was not able to obey the law, the parent, His parents could provide the, the structure for them, for Him particularly, to obey the law as He grew up and favor the favor of God was upon Him. And so, as parents, we need to take that seriously. That God has entrusted to us a great privilege and responsibility before our children know their right hand from their left hand that we're to show them this is your right hand, this is your left hand, this is good, that's bad. This is how God has structured His world so that we can know Him and love Him. That everything that you see in creation has a purpose to point to its Maker. So let's not begrudge or get frustrated when our kids ask why. Or how. Or what. But let's take the time that is necessary to teach them and admonish them and love them into the Gospel. The uh, fifth place you'll see here at the end of our passage, it really serves as a bookend to this entire pericope where he says in verse 39, And when they, talking about Mary and Joseph and the priest probably, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee. You see, what we see here by this verse in conjunction with the other four occurrences according to the law, this is not to highlight, this is not to highlight the righteousness of Mary and Joseph. It underlines the utter uniqueness and fulfillment that this infant was in the prophecies of the, of the prophets. That's what it's supposed to point us to is that, wow, this everything... According to the law of the Lord, everything was done as it was commanded to be done. You see, every jot and tittle of the law was met in this baby. And in this baby who would become a toddler, become an adolescent, and become a 30-something who would, be, who would die. So those are our five according to's. The objective reality. That something stood outside of Mary and Joseph. Something stood outside of Israel to point them to God. Something in space and time outside of themselves. And that's what we're supposed to see in our passage. There's an objective fulfillment. But what are, one of the things I don't want to get lost on us, and it's really easy to, is the utter Jewishness of this passage. As I mentioned, Israel was the centerpiece of God's activity in the world. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, 
Israel was chosen out of all the peoples, not because they were more numerous or strong or awesome, but they were the smallest and the most insignificant people. And God said, I am going to reflect my glory in you because you're small, because you're an outcast, because you're weak. I'm going to choose you as my fine china to display my feast for all peoples. Because Israel was meant to be a picture of of God's goodness, God's perfection, God's holiness and goodness and love towards all nations, all peoples. You see, one of the other things is that while God is utterly holy and separate from us, we also see that God is in our midst. God is in our midst, but He is other, and that's the way Israel is supposed to be. They're supposed to be separate, not in a way that they look down their noses at other people and say, Man, you... Y'all eat pork? Y'all work on the Sabbath? No. They were meant to be separate. And in that separateness, it would show the beauty and glory of God. You see, they were supposed to be forgiving debts, even as we prayed a moment ago. Forgiving debts as they had been forgiven. That even as God makes concessions for poor folks to be able to bring two birds instead of two lambs, we are to make and come and draw near and stoop and be next to those who are not like us, who may not have two lambs to be able to give them two lambs or even maybe two turtle doves. You see, instead of keeping the world at a distance, they were to welcome and draw near to the outcast and Gentile who didn't know God. They weren't meant to keep their light hidden under a bushel. No. They were going to let it shine. That was the purpose of their holiness and of their righteousness. Not to reflect who they were, but to reflect the one who had given them graciously his law. I want you to see here in verses 30 through 32, you'll see this. For my eyes have seen your salvation... That you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. When Jesus talks about a city set on a hill, he's using this image that a city set on a hill can't be hidden. Israel was meant to be set on a hill to display God's love and his beauty to surrounding people. You see, you cannot, we cannot receive Jesus until we, until we embrace the fact that he was utterly Jewish. Why? Because it's really easy to pull Jesus out and give him blue eyes and blonde hair and a, and a, you know, a German nose like me. It's really easy to pull Jesus out of his Jewish context. But if you do that, if we deny the fact that that. This Anna, daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, this Jewishness, then what we risk losing is the objective fulfillment that God said this would come to pass in this way. And we risk pulling that out of its context, and then the law is never objectively fulfilled in the promised Messiah. That's something that we should embrace. The law then remains for you and for me. A sentence of death. And it's a reminder that we'll never be able to do what God has commanded us to do. 
So it's no small thing that Jesus was born as a Jew to fulfill objectively in space and time all that was required of Israel because He is the new Israel. He is the picture of what Israel was supposed to be. A light to the Gentiles. Loving God from the heart, with the hands, and with the mind. Speaking God's very law to the people. Living as God would live, Emmanuel, amongst us. God with us. See, this is the point of what Isaiah prophesied that that we read just a moment ago that we heard in Isaiah 61. And I want to see if you can hear with new ears what Isaiah says here in chapter 61. And this is the the fifth servant song um, of Isaiah 61. So this is the servant... There are, there are five different songs in Isaiah that prophesy about a coming Messiah. And so um, here in chapter 61, we hear the Messiah saying this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Notice that's what Simeon's talking about here as well, right? Salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. For as the earth belong, brings forth its shoots and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up. This is garden language. To spring up before all the nations. Again, this is what Simeon's talking about. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn. And her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication. And all the kings will see your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. And a royal diadem in the hand of our God. This Christ, this Messiah, this suffering servant is the royal diadem of God. His vindicating righteousness. Because if Jesus weren't born in this way to a Jewish family, then there would be no Isianic fulfillment. And this is what Paul is talking about in Galatians 4 that we also read a moment ago, right? When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as children. So why was the Lord so slow in sending His royal diadem? The simple quick answer for a sermon that has got a certain time period on it is because the fullness of time had not come. And we can tease all of that out. But it was was utterly essential that Jesus be born under the law to fulfill the law given by God. And He fulfilled it in His birth, in His circumcision, in His being presented to the temple, in His teaching in the temple, in His life, and in His death, and in His resurrection, and in His his complete reign right now. You see, but it's not merely that this law, this objective standard that God has shown what His holiness looks like, it's not merely that this law was fulfilled objectively by Jesus. And that's our second point. 
that there had to have been a subjective fulfillment in application of that objective fulfillment. Paul gets at that, I, I think, here in, in again, going back to Galatians 4, when he says this, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a child, and if a child, then an heir through God. The purpose of the law was never meant to say, ha ha, you can't do it. But it was so that there would be a Messiah who would fulfill it, and then He would send His Spirit to you and to me so that we could then know what obedience from the heart looks like, feels like, acts like. The Spirit of God is not something or someone that is just ephemeral. But the Spirit of God has been sent into our hearts by God the Father and God the Son so that we can cry out, Father. This is what Paul gets at in Romans 8 too, right? So that the righteous requirement might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. The law was never meant to be a burden, but it was meant to point to another. And in pointing to another, it lifts up Messiah and says, He's fulfilled it. He's done perfectly. According to the law, all that was written about Him, it's been done. In the town of Bethlehem is born this day, in the city of David, a king. You see, Paul didn't just invent this concept, though. It's in our passage in Luke chapter 2 as well, right? I did a little shimmy on you. There are actually six places in this passage where the term according to, and I, before you go there looking for it, I see you looking for it, let me just say this. Before you go, before you go looking for it, let me explain what I mean by this subjective fulfillment in case, in case it's got lost on you in, in me. Much like the Japanese lieutenant I told you about, Hiro Onoda, We as Christians can be very good at knowing and understanding and reciting objective truths from God's law. We can be really good in getting our jots and tittles precise. And thereby thinking that we are closer to God because we can say more theological truths than our neighbor. I'm pretty sure that Hiro Noda, as he was in the jungle, as he was hunkering down, he was pretty sure they were going to win. Because how could they not? Because he was so dedicated to his command. And as Christians, a lot of times we can hunker down and we can shoot villagers. We can hurt people because we say we've got God's truth and if that hurts your feelings, too bad. And we haven't done the hard work of letting God's Spirit make this truth real and to affect us and to burn like a flame in our hearts. And that's what I pray that I will not be uh, a victim of or succumb to. And I pray that us as Redeemer will not succumb to that either. That because we know something doesn't mean we know it. But because we understand a deep truth doesn't mean we love it and we embrace it. You see, these are truths, beautiful truths that we just said according to the law of Moses, according to the law of the Lord, according to the law of, of, of the Lord. 
Many, many times. Five times. But this sixth time, you see, Simeon had experienced what it meant for God's law to enrapture him, to capture hold of his heart. We can talk about the weather, but a lot of times we don't know what it's like to splash in the puddles or to enjoy the the beams of God's sunlight or to hunker down and get warm while it's cold because of absence of heat. A lot of times we need to pause and reflect that by God's Spirit He wants to bring these truths to bear on the way we talk to one another, the way we think about one another, and what we love. I want you to look at Simeon, verse 29. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. You see, this word that he's talking about in verse 29 is not this objective word. But it goes back to verse 26. And it's been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Simeon references this idea. He he continues, if if you want to see that in verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Simeon understood that God's Spirit had to make real. Because look at what Simeon... I mean, Simeon is not just... The Spirit told me to do something. No, he's quoting Scripture here. He's pointing to these fulfillments of salvation, the presence of all peoples, the revelation of the Gentiles and glory of people Israel. There was all that content from what he knew in Scripture, but he made it real by the Spirit of God. So let's slow down just a bit. You see, this this child is appointed for the fall and rising. This this term fall is is used in Scripture to mean those who are disobedient, those who rebel against the Lord. It's it's this pipto is is the word. I'm not trying to impress you, but that's the word of, of falling and succumbing to sin. But this word rising is not just getting up. This is the word resurrection. So this child is appointed for the falling away and the resurrection of many people in Israel. And for a sign, which is Scripture's way of talking about God's works in His creation, that a sign that is opposed. These are, this is the word in Scripture for how Moses performed many signs and wonders before Pharaoh. Everyone could see it. They were wondering, why is the Nile turning red? Why are there frogs in my soup? Why is there utter darkness? Why is the firstborn being dedicated to death? They saw it. It had happened in space and time, and yet they denied it. And so Simeon is saying, in the same way that God sent Moses, God is sending His Messiah for the fall and resurrection of many in Israel, because not all Israel is Israel. We're not talking about ethnic Israel. We're talking about a people who by faith put their faith in God. So the signs are given. 
and opposed. Why? In order that the thoughts, verse 35, so that, in order that, the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So God gives all men everywhere His word for the fall and resurrection, that this is His objective standard, but what will you do with it? Will you just wonder why the Nile is red and not repent? Will you wonder why God sent His Son according to all these things in the law and not bow your knee to this Messiah that had been promised? But it's not just in Simeon, is it? That we see this subjective fulfillment. It's also in the prophetess Anna, verse 36. An 84-year-old widow who did not depart from the temple. You see here in this passage that that Luke is is highlighting for us the fact that this woman, this 84-year-old woman at the near the end of her life did not turn to the right or to the left, but pursued the Lord to the uttermost, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Do you do you get the sense that this woman was utterly bent on seeing the Messiah and on welcoming Him. You see, this term here, she did not depart from the temple, that's an, another way of saying that she wasn't seduced away from the temple. There's a lot of things that seduce us in life that would keep us from applying this objective word in our own lives. And only you know what that is. Only you know... Even if you've been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, how easy it is to get seduced away from your first love. How easy it is to get okay with being okay. How easy it is to just, you know, my heart's kind of cold and I'm kind of tired and I've heard that sermon before, I've heard that message before, I've read that passage before, I've prayed this prayer and to not be captured. How has that happened? By the Spirit of God. You can't do A plus B and get C. You have to cry out day and night that God, by His Spirit, would awaken your hearts and bring heat and light where there's dullness and coldness. She devoted herself to the very devotion of God. And what what does that look like? Look at verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting or welcoming, that's another way to say it, who were welcoming the redemption of Jerusalem. It looks like this, where you are welcoming God to come and do with you as He would by His Spirit. It's laying down and saying, God, have mercy on me as we prayed a moment ago. And it's saying, God, I need you to do in me what I cannot do. It's easy to get pulled away from the singular devotion. But see, it's not about going to a mountaintop either. If you see in Simeon and Anna what happened, that they were welcoming God's intervention in 
their midst at that time. So it's not about going to a mountain on a retreat. Those are nice. But true devotion says, Lord, I want to welcome you right now in the midst of my life. In the sadness, in the darkness, in the coldness, in the fear, and in the desire for more, in the, in the desire for material comfort. In this relationship that's broken, it's welcoming God in our midst. In every facet of work and of our personal relationships. That God is Emmanuel. Come amongst us in our midst. And my friends, there's no, there's no hard science about this. And it really gets down to brass tacks. How do you do this? How do you do this? You look at Simeon and you look at Anna. And it's never really changed over the last 2,000 years. Reading scripture, it's prayer, it's fasting. Scripture, prayer, and fasting. Waiting for and hastening for the bridegroom decked in a bridal garment to come in your midst and bring his power. Because obeying is not about drudgery. Obeying is not about checking things off on our list. I went to church, I went to small group, I... I read my Bible. I prayed today. No, it's when God captures our hearts with a greater love. You see, God, my friend, maybe you need to hear this this afternoon, that when you disobey, God is not wringing His hands. He's not saying, man, you better, you better listen. He's, he's calling you by His Word to enjoy Him. And when you enjoy Him, you enjoy Him more. When you obey Him, you obey Him more. You, it's... It's like a corkscrew. And every time you say, I'm going to choose meekness over pride. Because I believe that the meek will inherit the earth. I'm going to, I'm going to choose purity. Because I want to see God. And when you do that, you show that your greater treasure and your greater delight is God. And He gives more of Himself to you. You see, God's ways... Our best because God is more satisfying than any comfort, any material gift, even any spiritual discipline. But these are all meant to point us to God's utter uniqueness, God's utter ability to satisfy your every longing. And maybe you're not feeling like that this afternoon, but I want to encourage you to pray that that would be true in your own lives. So I'd like for us to just take a few moments in the silence. And, and deal with God as He would by His Spirit deal with you. I would like for you to just consider these things, that this objective standard that God wants you to apply subjectively in your own life, to make it real by His Spirit. What are areas of your life that you could ask God to come in your midst and show Himself glorious? And after a few moments of silence, we'll... We'll uh, sing together the solid rock.